Now we will have our scripture verse. It's 1 Corinthians 14 through 17, 23 through 25, the reverse, re revised standard version. If you would like to join me, I'll give you just a couple seconds here to open up your Bibles. It is on page 175 and 176 of your Bibles. So I'll just give you a couple seconds there to get to your place. <clears throat> Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. What should I do then? I will pray with the spirit, but I will pray with the mind also. I will sing praise with the spirit, but I will sing praise with the mind also. Otherwise, if you say a blessing with the spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say the amen? to you, thanksgiving, since the outsider does not know what you are saying. For you may give thanks well enough, but the other person is not built up. Therefore, if therefore, the whole church comes together and all speaking tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are of your mind? But if all prophesies, an unbeliever or an outsider who enters into reproved by all and called to account by all, after the secrets of the unbeliever's hearts are disclosed, that person will bow down before God and worship him, declaring, God is really among you. I think that, uh, what, you know, I share stories each week with some stuff in my life, and I don't think we've talked about my work back in Milwaukee, that I worked in the Office of Research and Innovation for at least three years. Um, and we did all sorts of things, like like tech transfer and like getting licenses of your intellectual property, like all of the stuff that the faculty were working on and getting businesses to license them out and um, go to creation and make those ideas reality. And we did funding competitions to get faculty, staff, and students to submit like innovation, innovative projects and we'd fund them. And we did all sorts of really um, interesting things that was very new to me because I don't have a science background, and yet I kept finding myself in all these science spaces, and they're like, how did you end up here? Um, but it was a really learning experience because I felt like a little bit of an outsider in much of that. And one of the things that I got to help out with was we had all these faculty who would go through this long process to get a patent. And I think about all the years of training and education all the years of research, and then they'd submit this thing and it'd finally get approved, and you got this patent, and the university wanted to figure out how to celebrate them. And so their first year run at this was just what academics like to do, let's do an award ceremony where you shake somebody's hand, you get a little certificate, and nobody shows up. And they asked me afterwards, like, what do you think? What do you think we should do? And I was like, this is one of the few things that we have like tangible products for. There's models, there's tools, there's all these things. Why aren't we doing a showcase? Bring these fun things in, let people interact with them, and see like the fruit of all this work. And so we did this showcase, and then, you know, one, you come up with an idea, you get a lot of work. So uh, I had to work with all these people to come up with, we made posters for them, and so we had to help them talk about how do I describe my project, how do I talk about its impact. And let me give you some ideas of what we were dealing with so you can get my confusion. Here's one title. DPY30 binding peptides. Purpose, the patent, shall, uh, the patent small peptides could be used to perturb a DPY30 containing enzyme, histone meth, uh, methyltransferase, 
I don't know, that writes epignetic marks on genomes. Yeah, okay. How do I make this interesting for you? Um, another professor, synthetic prosthesis for osteoodontokeratoprosthesis surgery. It has to do with eye surgery, and she was listing all the benefits, and she was doing a pretty nice job of trying to give you some benefits. Catch how she describes this and what she ends with. It offers a minimally invasive treatment that could be used when the something corneal transplantation is probable to fail. Here's the benefits. It lowers the cost due to one-step surgery and the use of inexpensive synthetic materials. And she saves till the end. It also saves the patient's tooth. One, they're using a tooth for an eye surgery. I would have never guessed that. And two, I would lead with the fact you get to keep your tooth. <laughs> and so all these research people are trying to figure out how do I explain this research and what I've done? How do I make it understandable where they, they get it? And we had one person who was writing, or whose patent was on a method and apparatus for detecting cardiac arrhythmia, and they filled out my online form, and they left a blank, impact, blank. And I reached out. Well, what's the impact? I don't know, you, you left it blank. And he's like, yeah, it was intentional, I wasn't sure. You're not sure? <laughs> You've spent so many years on this and you haven't even thought about the impact? And it's about heart arrhythmia. You can't come up with an impact for me? But we, we do this, we, we spend a lot of our time and energy into things and we don't think about how to share about it, how to communicate it. And in churches we fall prey to the same kind of temptations where we, we feel like we're talking but we develop such strong insider coded language that nobody understands what we're talking about unless you happen to grow up in that church culture. So the new person who shows up has no idea what's happening. As an example, anybody know what a love offering is? You heard a love offering? Now, there's a, a Christian comedian, John Christ, who has a YouTube video, and he asked some of his friends who had no church background, what, what do you think this means? And my PG version of this is they thought it had something romantic to do with it, and then they decided, well, if it's a church context, a love offering, maybe it's a hug. Like, no, it's, we didn't actually pay the person, and so we're going to take up an extra little collection to give them some love for their, their showing up and doing whatever they did, and here's a love offering for you. Now, that doesn't make much sense as a term to the outsider who doesn't know what a love offering is, uh, but we do that quite often. I want to read you my, hyper, hyper, my hyperbole here. Here's a Christianese example. Um, Christianese is that term for that Christian cultured language that only Christians understand. Here's my quote. There's a spirit of heaviness hanging over you. So I just need to speak the truth and love for a minute with you. How's your heart? How's your quiet time? Have you been backsliding or are you spending time on your knees with Jesus because I'm worried about you? Instead of spending so much time listening to that secular music, you should be spending time in the word, brother. Guard your heart, man. Press into Jesus. Ask him for a hedge of protection over you. If you need an accountability partner, I'm here for you. We're going to have some fellowship later. I hope you come because we really should do life together. Now, if you understood that, it's because you get Christianese. But there's a lot of like slang, like jargon, Christian stuff in that. That to the outside, they're like, wait, what on earth is happening here? Even just, what on earth does fellowship mean? We throw it around so much. But even Christians have a hard time actually defining that. What do we mean by that? Um, what about pressing in and 
quiet time. Like, is it just silence? What is quiet time? Like, there's all these phrases that we just use, and we just are so used to it. We're used to the coded language. And it's like we're those research scientists who've gotten really in-depth into a field and then forget, how on earth do I talk to a general audience about it? And so we've been working through a series on being the church in the 21st century, and today we move to how do we communicate? How do we talk to people? And I want to start up front that the text that we read from, Paul is dealing with a very specific, concrete issue. He's talking about people who are speaking in tongues, which tongues was just a word for languages, but they're talking about some sort of spiritual or angelic language of some sort. It's a prayer language for them. Um, and it's become a problem because he's having to address it because people don't know what's being said and they're confused. And, and so he's talking about that. But I think there are some principles about how do we communicate and how people understand us that are also uh, at work. So what are the principles that Paul engages in this very precise challenge but actually speak to us um, in a broader way? And so uh, when we got onto our text, I want to first point out it seems like it should be obvious, but speakers should speak to be understood. That's a nice baseline. Are we just talking because we like to hear our voice? Are we just talking because we want to be persuasive and we want to get what we want and it's not really about what we say, it's just whatever I need to do to get that thing? Uh, maybe you've seen a C-SPAN episode in which there's filibusters going on and people aren't talking to do anything, they're just talking to fill time. There's a lot of reasons to talk. But the basic communication method is you talk so someone else can understand you. And Paul is having to call that out of if you're using your mouth, your tongue, your language, speak to be understood. And so he says, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue and a language should pray for the power to interpret. So obviously in his context, he's talking about if you're spiritually talking to God and, and, and people don't understand, you need to fill that in with also being understood. What on earth is happening here? What is being said? But generally, if you're going to talk to people, pray that it actually gets understood, that it can be interpreted. And that's not just between languages, even when we speak English together. Um, you know this because if you've ever had conversations between grandparents and grandchildren, we speak English together often, but we don't necessarily speak the same kind of English together. But pray that you can understand and that you can you can be understood and that it's on you to think about how it can be interpreted. And I think this is really challenging for anyone who, who was a parent or who is a parent. You've been faced with the struggle of how do I tell my kids about something? Because you're, you've suddenly become, you realize, wait, they think very concrete when they're little. I can't do metaphoric language. I gotta be very precise with them. How do I explain something complicated? Um, even just like going to a funeral with a little one and how do you talk about death or do you talk about it at all? And, and what, do you, what do you say to a kid? That same struggle about how do I talk to a kid should transform in how do I talk to adults who have different stories, different backgrounds, different areas of expertise. And I think that we should hope to be understood. We should be thinking about it, and I'm aware of it each week because when you spend um, at least 10 years of college training getting all of this academic jargon, and so you think about a certain theological concept and you're like, wait, 
I need people in the room to understand what I'm talking. I don't want to sit there and explain an academic term. How would I just share this to somebody who doesn't need to know the term? They can just understand the concept without a term. And so you, and it's really frustrating for people who are becoming professors because they've been learning all this precise language and they get into the room and then they got to generalize. And they spent 10 years talking bad about those generalizations. And now I got to start from scratch again and I got to speak in a way that everybody can understand me and I got to generalize again. And so we got to work through those struggles, um, but there's different contexts. So if you know that your room is one that's ready to study, you know, maybe your particular Sunday school class is one that's going to get more in depth on a topic and it's more appropriate to go into a, a term that maybe you wouldn't use elsewhere because you have the time to explain it, to go back and forth with it, but you just got to know your context. Um, and so we, we got to be aware of where we're speaking and who we are speaking to. But I want to bring up one challenge to this that some people might voice. Okay, now you're thinking about your mind so much and what people understand, but shouldn't we just speak in the spirit? And if I spend too much time thinking about all of this intellectual stuff and what people understand or don't understand, am I getting in the way of that? And the spirit's not really going to use me and it's not going to speak through me. And that's a concern that some people have. And I want to quote uh, from Paul this morning. He says, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. What should I do then? I will pray with the spirit, but I will pray with the mind also. I will sing praise with the spirit, but I will sing praise with the mind also. He's saying it's not just possible, but we should use all of ourselves. You have a mind for a reason. You have a heart for a reason. How do we use our spirit and our mind together and not check one at the door? Because sometimes you've probably had the experience where you've checked one or the other at the door. This really great, feels great spiritual space, but yet maybe people haven't thought things through. Um, the theological premises are a little bit crumbling and falling apart for you. Or maybe you went to a really like great theologically sound thing, and, but it was so cold and there was no spirit in there. How do we do both of those things together is the challenge of, of being the church. And um, I love that he gives different examples. Our prayers should be both our mind and our spirit. Our praise should be both our mind and our spirit. Our speech should be both our mind and our spirit. And so how do we work to have more of ourselves where our full being, our full spirituality, our full minds are at work together uh, in the way we speak and the way we talk? And uh, I appreciate kind of one of the ways that this works itself out and people become more aware of it is in the way we, we sing. And one of the things I love about our hymnal, because I think it was made like in the 90s, was it went through and it, and it found some phrases that's like, you know what, maybe this isn't as inclusive as we'd, as we'd like it to be. And so it takes some phrases and then make it a little bit more gender, um, like more inclusive so that women feel like they're a part of this song more often or things like that. And so it might take a few phrases of these classic traditional songs and say, you know what, it's okay to play with this a little bit. We can still hit the meter and the rhythm of the song and we can still do the right notes, but it's okay to update the language so that people aren't frustrated singing about something that doesn't feel right in today's world. Because think about it, like when these songs were written, um, a lot of them, if you go back far enough, you get slavery at work in the world, women with hardly any rights and and the world has changed. And so now as people in today's world, we look at some songs and we're like, man, you can get struggled with this of, 
I love the beat of the song. Man, this, this, this lead line is so great. But man, I have a hard time singing this one. You know, just the words and, and your own wrestling with the words. But then you find sometimes where you're like, man, I love the words. Why could they not find a little bit better of a lead line for this? And so we struggle with that of like, how do I find that sweet spot where my spirit is just full and my mind is full and I didn't have to check one or the other at the door? And that's true of our, of our classic music. That's true of our modern music. The same thing. You might find the beat that you love and then the words don't fit or you might find the words you love and the beat doesn't fit. Um, but we're all looking and longing for how do I get both of those things together where my spirit and my mind can both rejoice and praise God together. And that's what we're, we're hoping for. And I love that Paul doesn't stop there. It's not just, okay, use your spirit, use your mind to be understood. But you should be understood in a certain way. You should speak prophetically. You shouldn't just talk Hey, it's great, we understand two plus two equals four. But say something that matters. Um, so can we speak in a way that matters and speaks into the world? And so he talks about speaking prophetically. I always feel like I need to pause on that because that misunderstanding. I, our culture has a lot of ways of understanding what prophetic speech means. Usually just on the, can you predict who's going to win a game next? Like that future prediction world. But there's so many prophets in the Bible whose role was to look at society to know who God is and who God's character is, and to speak God's character and God's desire and God's future into that present world. Like, this is, this is evil, this is wrong. You're harming people. God doesn't want that. And there's a future in which that is no longer the, the reality. And I always love to give the example of um, the I have a dream speech for the prophetic speech. He's not necessarily seeing literal people holding hands in the I have the dream speech. It's just... I know how history works and what it's moving towards because God is moving it and at some point equality wins and we long for that day that equality wins. And so speaking prophetically is about speaking God's vision for the world and God's future for it into the current world. And I love what Paul says. He says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, so they're all speaking in this kind of spiritual language that people don't, don't necessarily understand. And then he says, and outsiders or unbelievers enter. Will they not say that you are out of your mind? I love, I'm going to pause there. I love that he's saying, one, you should think about outsiders. You shouldn't demand that they figure out your language first. You need to be thinking about their experience. That when they come in, they encounter God's, God's wisdom, God's love in a way that they can understand. And so you have a responsibility to speak that to them. I also love that he's just willing to admit because he's talking into a situation. He's saying, people in Corinth are going to show up and they're saying, you're out of your mind. He's kind of made that a little bit subtle by making it hypothetical. But he's like, think about it. They're coming in and they have no idea what you're talking about and that that's not a good thing. And he says, he goes on, but if all prophecy, uh, an unbeliever or outsider who enters is reproved by all and called to account by all, after the secrets of the unbeliever's heart are disclosed, that person will bow down before God and worship him, declaring, God is really among you. And I love that of, it's not like you have to speak easy or soft, but speaking uh, with your spirit and your mind prophetically of, here's what's wrong in the world that we are resisting against, that God's love should, should shine in this, should, should change you, should, should call you to be a better neighbor. And if you talk about that, the person that shows up might say, yeah, I've been an awful neighbor. And there might actually be a chance for change. 
say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I, I want to be a part of this. I agree. I see that vision of, of God, and I see God at work, and I want to be a part of that God be praised. But if instead you were just talking your insider language that no one understands, you lose out on that opportunity for change and transformation because you just stayed to your coded language that nobody gets, and they're just going to think you're crazy. And so Paul makes us think about what does the outsider, the unbeliever, think when they hear us talk. And I love he said this also kind of earlier. Otherwise, if you say a blessing with the Spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say the amen to your thanksgiving since the outsider doesn't know what you're saying? So I love that. How do we think that way? That the random um, person in your life, your friends, your, the, your acquaintances, do they understand what you're saying? Do the guests that show up in your church who have never been in a church environment, do they understand what you're saying? Paul's saying that that stuff matters. And I love his kind of, I, I'd kind of use this as his summary. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He's not afraid of boasting a little bit here. He's like, okay, if we want to talk about speaking in this kind of spiritual language, I could do that better than everybody. But uh, here's how he follows it up. How can anyone, in, um, sorry, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. He's saying, what good is it? Even if I'm great at this, I'm in this prayer language. If no one understands me, what's the point? Just give me five good words and that'll make a bigger difference in someone's life than a thousand words that mean nothing. And so sometimes we forget that and we think, you know, someone's grieving and you're like, what should I say? And you just word vomit. Maybe five good words is all that's needed. And so I think that we're called to be intelligible, to, you know, to be communicating in a way that can be understood. And I can't help but share, back in Milwaukee, I went through the ordination council process. And it, it's a little bit different depending on your region. But the American Baptist ordination process, at least in Wisconsin, uh, required you to write an ordination paper. Write a 10-page paper on your theology, your personal theology. Uh, there's other requirements too, but that was one of the, one of the things. And trust me, the challenge, <clears throat> the challenge is to keep it to 10 pages when you're talking about these giant concepts. Uh, but I really appreciated, I got this task while being at Marquette and being around some students from different faith traditions. And I really appreciated my friends who were, let's say, Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or Anglican. They, hear my, they heard my assignment and they said, what do you mean? You got to write your own personal theology? Why don't you just say, yeah, I, I, I agree with the creeds? Because <laughs> they're from the tradition like, wait, how do I make sure that I say that I maintain the theological statements of my past? And so they were really intrigued by this assignment of use your own language to talk about your theology. And so I was trying to make sense of that and, and talk about what was healthy and good in that, um, but also learning and being appreciative of their perspective of, okay, so it's not about reinventing the wheel. Because that's the, that's the temptation is to think that you're supposed to completely re, reimagine the way we talk about God. Like, no, that's not the case. Um, the goal is, can you put into your own language that can be understood these historic truths that our faith has, has come to know? Um, and so it's kind of the way we package as opposed to that the truths are changing. But it, it gave me enough pause that the sections of the paper were supposed to go, tell your story, your faith journey, Talk about how, who God was to you as you grew up and why you're on this path. And then it shifts and it's, all right, talk about God, the church, redemption, scripture, all these theological categories. 
And so I put a little preface where I wanted to explain what came next. And I was like, I'm gonna talk about my theology for a minute, um, but I wanna be careful about how you hear this, that I don't want this to sound like I'm just a, a proponent of privatized theology as if we don't do theology together, as if I don't have much to learn from all who have gone before me. Um, and so this is my theology, but it's not just mine. I've inherited it, and I'm gonna give it some new language. And so we talked through all of these topics, and we had a really fun council because I just like talking theology. So I really enjoyed the whole thing, and some people feel like they're really nervous and worried about it. It's like, I don't get to get in the room and talk about redemption and the church and stuff with everybody. Like, this is fun. Um, and so they were talking about the paper, and there was one person in the room who kept kind of responding in a negative way. She's like, I hear what you're saying, but like, where's your faith in that? And I think what, what I was hearing and what the council was hearing, and I loved someone, I appreciated someone speaking up about this, was I wasn't using her coded language. She has a phrase or two of, you know, you can fill it in with what, whatever you expect. Um, did you say, oh, I'm born again? Did you say, oh, I accepted Jesus into my heart? Or whatever the phrasing is that you feel really particular to. That's what you, you're drawn to. And if you don't hear someone else use it, you start being like, well, what's their faith really like? And, and so what I was realizing was, even though this Baptist tradition wasn't coming at it from, here's your creeds, people still show up with their own personal creeds of, I wanna hear this coded language here. And it's just unspoken. We don't know what to expect um, that each person has as their coded language. Um, and so my challenge is for us is, how do we stop working in that coded language world. Not just where we're distrustful of everybody else because they didn't use the language I like to use in my codes, but how do I speak in a way that people can understand me so that I'm not just talking in codes and they, they think I'm crazy? Um, but how do you talk to some of your friends and tell them your life story without them being completely confused? How do we talk about the story of our church to people who are new, where they're not completely confused? Um, how do we talk about our spaces and ways that people understand where we're going? Because sometimes we give directions, and it's like, all right, if you see the kitchen, and then you take a left and a right, and then there's this fellowship hall. Like, wait, what's a fellowship? What's a fellowship hall? You know, how do we help explain it for people and invite them in so they understand what we're talking about? And so I, I know that you might have heard this morning in our service, we try to talk through the elements because we get so used to them that if you're used to them, you know what's coming next. But if you're not used to them, you're like, wait, what's going on? Oh, we're singing now. Um, and so like with Hear Our Prayer, O Lord, you know, like just, hey, we like to sing and you can find it in your bulletin. Just so that way that person doesn't feel lost for a moment and suddenly panic. Um, and so how do we help make sure that every outsider feels welcome? That's why we do our, our welcome guest kind of uh, conversation at the front of the service each week. Um, we want to make sure that people understand us and that they feel welcome and a part of things and hopefully challenged and inspired because we can speak prophetically about what's going on in the world and how that speaks into our lives. And so I hope that each of us would kind of think about the way we speak this week I can't give you the answer of here's how you should speak because we all have different audiences, different life experiences. 
but it's the challenge to reconsider the way you talk, uh, the way you interact with people. And I was telling Brentley this week, I was like, can we do a song, the O for a Thousand Tongues to Sing? I was like, I've heard this in my past and I've only heard it in this way, and so I just feel like I can't help it but want to do that again. We sing about, I wish I had a thousand tongues to sing, but yet we don't use the one we have very well. Can we work on the one we have? And then maybe two. I just love Paul. Give me five words, five good words. Um, Let's work with what we have. Let's, Let's think about the way we speak, the way we talk, the way we interact. And I want to just close with Paul's charge. Brothers and sisters, do not be children in your thinking. Rather, be infants in evil, but in thinking, be adults. Would you join me in prayer? Lord God, we are, we are often unaware of your presence, even though you are here. We are often distracted. Lord, I just ask that you would fill us with your spirit and your wisdom and that you might guide our words, that we might speak about you truthfully and spiritfully uh, into the world, Lord. I just ask that you would give us a heart for the outsider, like Paul does, Lord, that you'd give us a heart for the person that doesn't understand and that you might help us to learn how to speak to that, to that person because your, your truth and your love and your, your call is just as meaningfully to them as it is to us. Lord, I ask that if someone is in this room who is in the midst of, of not understanding, of questions, Lord, I ask that you would be in the midst of their, their own search for the words, for the wisdom. Lord, I ask that you would be in all that we, we do. Lord, help us to um, be better, better at pointing to you. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.